if we can get the technology to work. Yes, so far so good. Right, there's, there's a Woody Allen film called um, Everything You Were Afraid, You want, Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. I think he actually stole the title from somewhere else as well. But um, in this case, actually, they had asked. Um, most people think that this uh, first, this is a quote in the first verse, is a good for a man, for a man not to marry or not to have sexual relations, is um, probably a quote from a letter that Paul had received. Now, before we um, dive into this, I'd uh, just uh, like to remind you of uh, one doctrinal principle, principle that uh, we sometimes call total depravity, as it applies particularly to marriage. So, in Genesis 2.18, uh, the Lord had said, It's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so, man and women were created to be together. And yet, after the fall, even that which is good and right in itself is tainted. And so, he says to the woman, just a chapter later, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So those things which were good and right become tainted. And let's uh, say we sometimes use the term total depravity, which doesn't mean that things are as bad as they could possibly be, but it means that everything about human life is tainted by sin. So, 1 Corinthians 7, Chris said on Wednesday, um, you'll go out to dive into the minefield of 1 Corinthians 7. Um, well, is it a minefield or is it a gold mine? Um, well, it certainly can be a minefield, I think, if you're unwary, if you tread unwarily. Um, I mean, it seems to go against things that are said elsewhere in the scripture about marriage and so on. Um, it even, did you notice, it even seems to contradict itself. So in verse, uh, verses 3 to 5, he says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband, and so on. He says, The body, your wife's body does not belong to her alone, but to her husband, and, and husband belongs to the wife. And yet, in verse 29, he says, uh, From now on, those who have wives should live as they have none. So not only does he seem to be uh, saying different things to the rest of other passages of scripture about marriage and other issues, he even seems to be contradicting himself here, at least at first sight. We need to um, dig into this and uh, see what we can make of it and see what he's really trying to tell us. And so um, I'd like to actually to give, because of this nature of this passage, to give a, a relatively long introduction um, <coughs> and so, first of all, I'd like to uh, just briefly say how should we approach a passage like this. Secondly, put this passage in context, because I think the context is important here. And then thirdly, we'll dig into some of the issues he um, says himself, to tackle the tricky issues. Uh, we'll look at one or two of the particular issues, but I say you'll be glad to know I'm not going to go through verse by verse, or we'll be here till midnight. Uh, but I'd also, as part of that, like to look at the way he tackles some of these issues, uh, because I think that's very useful in itself. So, if we have a passage like this, how are we going to deal with it? Well, we could just ignore it, because we don't like it. 
I could have just gone on to chapter 8. Uh, one of the advantages, though, of, or one of the advantages, or perhaps one of the disadvantages of uh, going through this, a book chapter by chapter is that uh, you have to deal with the difficult bits. Um, or, of course, we could just expound it in such a way that um, does violence to the rest of Scripture and uh, you know, ignore what else Scripture says on these subjects and, um, uh, and interpret it and say, well, clearly it means that. And that's when it really does become a minefield. You can really get yourself into trouble by doing things like that, by taking one verse from one passage out of context and making it mean something that it's really not meant to. Oh, well, what's the proper way to do it? Well, of course we should be interpreting, as we say, Scripture with Scripture. Uh, if something's difficult to understand, we look at another passage of Scripture to throw light on it. Um, and we should meditate on it, and we should apply wisdom to it. Um, that's what that psalm we were sing just singing says. We need to reflect on it, apply our minds to it, meditate about it, try and understand it. So I hope that's what we're going to do this evening, is the third of those, rather <laughs> than the other two approaches. Now let me just remind you, he had started talking about sexual immorality and marriage in the end of chapter 6. Um, again, I don't want to go back and do the whole sermon again, of course. But um, one, just to note a few things we picked out last week, is that marriage itself is good, but it doesn't survive death. Um, let me just... Right. Yeah, marriage is good because it doesn't survive death. It completes the image of God as male and female. Remember it says that in Genesis 1, in the image of God, man, God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. And yet, at the same time, it's not ultimate. It doesn't survive death, as we read in this passage and it says elsewhere. And Jesus said, um, in the resurrection, we're like the angels, which presumably means that uh, we're not married. Um, this was the issue the Sadducees raised, of course. Um, if somebody's married, a woman is married to two men, or seven men, actually, in this life, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus said, you don't understand. We're not given in, people are not given in marriage in the resurrection. They're like the angels. So marriage is not ultimate in that sense. Jesus was not married, of course. Um, conspiracy theory and fancy books to the contrary um, I mean if Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene why would the church have bothered to hide it most Jews were married after all and uh, I think even more telling on the cross Jesus took care of his mother didn't he he said to his mother look here's, here's your, your son John and gave her into the care of the apostle John Surely if he's been married, he would have done the same for his wife, but he didn't. So we can be fairly sure that Jesus wasn't married, I think, and perhaps for fairly obvious reasons, that it wouldn't have been fair to the woman to put her through what Jesus was going to go through. <coughs> and we're fairly certain that Paul wasn't married. He seems to um, say that in this passage in 1 Corinthians 7. Some people have suggested that um, Philippians 4 where it talks about a, a loyal yoke fellow, might have been a, a wife left behind in Philippi, but 
doesn't seem very plausible. And even if it was, it's clear that they, if it was the case, they had agreed to live apart a and live celibate lives. So unless Paul is an almighty hypocrite, um, he is living a, a celibate life. And so Paul wasn't married. So not everybody. It's not compulsory for Christians to be married. Now what about the context of this? Um, that the period of Jesus' life actually was a bit of a window of relative peace in Judea. Herod the Great, by dint of a lot of violence and a considerable amount of political astuteness, had um, managed to take seize control under with Roman support of most of Jerusalem and Judea, and his, well, in fact, most of Israel. Um, and he had knocked down um, uh, Zerubbabel's temple and actually rebuilt it, or started rebuilding it. It wasn't completed till after his death. And this was the temple, indeed, that Jesus and the disciples were talking about. It was on a grand scale similar to Solomon's. Um, his immediate descendants had not managed to hang on to all of uh, Judea, because we know that um, Pilate was the governor in the southern part of, the, of Israel, but Herod's, I think it was actually his grandson, I can't remember his son or grandson, but had, uh, was still held on to the northern part. But both, of course, they were Roman puppets in a sense, but they had a considerable amount of power. Herod, particularly, um, was a king and had a certain amount of political power up in the north. Um, but things were beginning to unravel. Um, it's thought that 1 Corinthians is written, at least I say it's thought, this is according to the Lion Handbook from the Bible, so I suppose it must be true, um, suggests that 1 Corinthians uh, was written about in AD 54. And AD 54 was a rather significant date in itself. It was um, the date in which Claudius, who by Roman standards was a fairly good and fairly sane emperor, died, and he was succeeded by Nero, unstable, tyrannical, and um, an exponent of that great uh, tactic of if you get in political trouble, then persecute an, uh, a despised minority. Um, often the Christians in Nero's case. That's a tactic, tactic that's stood the test of time and has been used by tyrants for thousands of years. And Nero was good on that, good at that. Um, and in Jerusalem also, things were beginning to unravel. When the, um, the fact that Sanhedrin had said that, you know, we don't want to upset the Romans and they'll come and take our place away, they actually, there actually was some justification for this. Um, and certainly by AD 55, things were starting to unravel. The, um, it were revolutionary movements and warlords. And in fact, it all just got worse and worse until in AD 70, that Ju Jerusalem and Judea had become virtually ungovernable. Um, and really, the Romans had no choice but to intervene. And um, the, it was all recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus, 
who actually was with the invading Roman army. Um, he was, although he was Jewish, he was uh, pro-Roman. And it, it, apparently it was just complete chaos in the city. Um, at, but the Christians who were still in the city and in the temple remembered Jesus' prophecy about when they see the abomination of desolation talked about in the prophet, prophet Daniel and they fled the city and they escaped. And so um, that prophecy that Jesus had said that, you know, when you see it, don't go back for your coat, get out fast. That's exactly what they'd done. And um, that happened in AD 70, not shortly, well, not shortly, but just a few years after this um, passage was written. And, and things were beginning to unravel even by AD 54. And the internal context, of course, as we've already seen, is that it was a disunited church uh, with all sorts of tricky questions, all sorts of problems. And so in AD 70 came perhaps not the final judgment. Uh, Jesus said, remember, this is just the beginning of birth pains, but certainly a final judgment, a final judgment on the temple system and the city of Jerusalem. Never again would there be a temple and sacrifices on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And just to make sure of it, the Muslims had built a mosque there. Um, so it was a judgment on that system that, although it had been instituted by God, had failed to keep the people meeting with God. No longer would there be a holy of holies in Jerusalem where you could go and meet with God, as it were, face to face. So it was a final judgment. And it's in that context that I think of political unrest in the Roman Empire, of um, disputes and chaos within the Corinthian church, which existed, of course, in a seaport with all the natural chaos that you get in any seaport. And um, so things are already beginning to unravel in Jerusalem that I think that Paul wrote this book and particularly this chapter and I think we need to um, sort of bear that in mind as we come to it. Christians will always live I think in a sort of dynamic tension between the affairs of this world and the affairs of the next world. Um, remember what Jesus said again Matthew 6, I'll just read it out save a bit of time. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run all after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for t tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has trouble enough of its own. And so it's not surprising that in this chapter Paul puts emphasis on the need first to seek the kingdom and I think that's what he's getting out here <coughs> so let's look at some of these issues um, I'm not I mean he deals as you, as you would have seen with all sorts of things he deals with slavery and freedom and um, uh, possessions and things like that but it, he focuses on sexual relations and marriage as you would have realised as we read it and his approach is very much the same anyway 
So what I'd like to do is look first of all at what he says about sexual relations in ma- particularly sexual relations in marriage and then rather than going on to look at the other issues that he deals with see the approach that he takes to dealing with these issues and see what we can learn from that because we may not face exactly the same issues as the Corinthians but we will certainly face problems of a similar magnitude and difficulty and see how he goes about dealing with these issues Okay, and so I'm going to spend perhaps most of these, these four topics but I'll try and get through the first three fairly quickly and spend most time on the, on the last one so first of all he says that we shouldn't be denying our humanity we have to be realistic as it says in that passage we have needs, our father knows that we need food and clothing and housing and in fact most of us uh, need sexual relations as well as Paul points out here he says uh, some of us can live celibate lives but most people can't and so for instance in verse 9 he says if unmarried and widows cannot control themselves they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion actually it's perhaps interesting that um, Paul gives more advice to women to remain unmarried than he does to men and if you notice that in the passage maybe he feels that women have more uh, find it easier to remain celibate than, than men do I don't know uh, but uh, anyway his advice is really the same to both men and women that if you cannot live a celibate life then you should marry because the alternative is immorality um, we shouldn't deny fanatically deny our human needs um, and if, because if we do we do a lot more harm than good I mean how much trouble and distress and it, evil has been caused by this Catholic insurance on, insistence on their priests remaining celibate most of them can't do it as Paul says well about most that may be unfair but certainly many of them can't do it um, and certainly I don't think it's right that we should insist that preachers of the gospel should do so most of the apostles were married of course as we very well know um, yeah, it's a, some people may have the gift of being able to remain celibate and it might be an advantage to them but most people don't and we all have other needs anyway don't we we all need food we can fast sometimes but we all need food um, we all need shelter and we need other things as well we're humans, we're creatures and um, we're not supposed to be some sort of fanatic but rather we're supposed to live as giving thanks for the things that the Father knows that we need and, and gives us so we shouldn't deny our humanity is the first thing I think he's saying here and another interesting point I think we can get out of this which is well worth saying I think is that sex should not be used for manipulation all our human deeds all our human needs I mean do leave us open don't they to manipulation um, but sexual needs particularly perhaps and both men and women can do this men can do it by forcing their partner by uh, dominating them and uh, you know, just uh, 
sort of are trying to overpower them. And women can do it by denying their partner's sex, sexual relations, so that until they get their own way. And um, it's a temptation for all of us to do that sort of thing, isn't it? To use sex as a manipulation. Sexual relations among humans bear very little relation, by to what Stephen Fry says, to sexual relations among animals. Of course, they are for some sexual relations are partly for reproduction and so on, and animals have their displays and so on, but so that the, you can pick your best mate. But the actual sexual relationships between humans are far deeper and more complex than um, any uh, interactions between humans, uh, between animals, I mean. They're, um, they're far, in one hand, they're far more cerebral. I mean, we, we put our, involve our minds in giving sexual pleasure to each other. Um, and, uh, and maybe even on the other end, they're also perhaps they're more ecstatic than even we find among animals. Um, sexual relations between humans are very complex. And uh, it does enable us, I say, to exploit one another if we're not very careful. And um, it's interesting, Paul's solution to this particular issue, he proposes joint ownership. Did you notice that? Um, the more enlightened countries have perhaps joint ownership of property among married couples. Um, but uh, no, many of them don't even say that. But what Paul actually proposes is joint ownership of the bodies. In verse um, four and five, you know, in these feminist days of a woman's body as her own, he says, "Well, no, I'm afraid that's not true. If you're married, what did you say in the marriage service? With my body, I honour you." all that I have I give you. And, uh, but it's not a one-way traffic, he says. It's not that the woman's body becomes the property of the man. No, this is entirely reciprocal. Um, the, uh, it's, uh, it's like having a joint bank account. There's a joint body account as well. And, um, and so we should not be using our bodies to exploit one another, but rather we should be making uh, um, uh, encouraging one another and making, as it said, making ourselves more complete through our sexual relationships with one another. And so we shouldn't be denying each other for any reason other than by mutual consent. Just as if you have a joint bank account, joint property, you wouldn't sell your house without asking your husband or wife. Um, it would be mutual. And so the same, we shouldn't give up sexual relations except possibly by mutual consent and even then, he says, only do it for a short time because otherwise there will be too much temptation to immorality and you might start looking elsewhere. That's an important point in itself, of course, that we don't actually encourage our partners to start looking elsewhere by, um, you know, by being cold or by being uh, unresponsive. So, sex shouldn't be used for manipulation. Now, that's all I'm actually going to say about these issues of um, sexual desire as such. There's, there's quite a lot about it, but I want to sort of look more generally 
at what Paul's saying in this passage now. Um, and the poor point he's making here, I think, is that these um, even legitimate desires can anchor us to this world. I think that's what he's, um, the point Paul's making here. And that's why in verses 32, um, sorry, it's, well, I've got the numbers wrong there, so it's, it's, um, not 32 to 30. Yeah, well, sorry, it is. It's, but it, he starts that saying that in verse um, 29. Now on those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not those to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if it not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the, this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. And um, he goes on like that. I, I think he's not saying that it is wrong that um, a married man should be concerned with the affairs of his wife, to please his wife. That's what he should be doing, of course. Husbands, love your wives, he says elsewhere in Ephesians. Um, but it is anchoring us to this world. And um, it's what uh, Jesus said, wasn't it? That um, you've got to love me more than your wife or husband or son or daughter. Seek first the kingdom of God and then these things will be added to you. And I think this is what Paul's saying here when he almost seems to contradict himself, saying if you have a wife, live as if you don't have a wife. Um, I don't think he's, he's saying, well he's clearly not saying don't involve in sexual relations, don't care for your wife because he's just told them earlier not to do that. I think what he's saying is don't make this your anchor. Don't be so anchored in the world that you can't give it up. Um, we all have a desire, I guess, don't we, to retire to whatever our view of heaven is, whether it's a place down by the Mediterranean or an alpine chalet or maybe a windmill in Norfolk or whatever our particular view is. Most of us don't do that. In fact, the only couple I know who probably will do that are the couple, a couple who have no children. My sister has bought a, a place in Spain but now she wants to sell it because uh, her grandchildren are all in England or in Australia. Grandchildren. You don't do it because of grandchildren. We want to see them grow up, don't we? quite right that we should. Those things do anchor us to this world and they're fair enough as far as they go but um, they mustn't be the ultimate anchor, they mustn't hold this world so firmly that we can't leave it, that we can't give them up. Now, I say I'd like to spend perhaps a little bit more time, I don't want to go on for too long, we've got communion today, but I'd like to spend a little bit more time looking at this, the approach that Paul takes here to dealing with some of these issues. <coughs> and the first point I'd like to make is that wisdom reads the signs of the times. Times of trouble and crisis might alter the balance of wise behaviour. 
Um, and I think this is what he's saying in verses 26 and 28. Um, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for you to remain as you are. Um, if you do marry, you will have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What is wise to do in one circumstance might be different to do, difficult to do in another circumstance. And as Jesus said, to be saddled with a baby, or to be pregnant, or to saddle with a partner, when the destruction comes, is bad news. But that's not saying that it's always the wrong decision. But it, we have to read the signs of the times and see what is um, actually happening. But we are opening ourselves up, of course, to trouble and distress by committing ourselves to things and people in this world. We are certainly opening ourselves. It's um, what... Um, that's what they, they, they tell you if you listen to sort of the various counsellors, bereavement counsellors and so on, they tell you things like um, grief is the price we pay for loving. Um, that sounds a bit of a cliche, but actually it's true, isn't it? If we love people, then if we lose them, we find there's not a lot of grief involved. And so he says those who mourn shouldn't be as if they don't mourn. But equally, those who are happy, as if they realise that their, to remember their happiness is transient. And if you bought the latest gadget, the latest TV or whatever it is, remember that you could lose it. Don't build your life around it. You might have to give it up. And um, there's a lot here, actually, Paul says about wisdom and guidance, I think. And there is a, a sort of guidance, one theory of Christian guidance that says, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, of course, you can't argue with the, the principle in a sense, that is true. Um, Paul says that in Ro uh, Romans 8, doesn't he? That uh, those whom he predestined, he also, uh, I can't remember it all, those whom he for knew he predestined, those whom he predestined he justified, those whom he justified he also glorified. He says nobody can separate us from the love of God. So the statement is true enough. God does have a wonderful plan for your life. But the wonder is not always immediate. And um, moreover, often when we start thinking like this, God has a wonderful plan for your life, um, you sort of expect some sort of divine revelation, some sort of neon sign in the sky as to what this is going to be, and then you put it straight into practice without it passing through your mind at all, and then you give up thinking altogether. Um, or, of course, you might miss it. Suppose you miss, you know, suppose you blinked while the neon sign was there and you missed it. And then, oh dear, for the rest of your life you're on the wrong track. It it's not, doesn't work like that, and yet so often you do hear Christians talking like that. But that's not the way it works, and that's certainly not the way Paul deals with this. Yes, I, I've written down here, paradoxically, this actually most often occurs among Christians most influenced by postmodern thinking. 
because it reflects the thinking of the world. Have you, you notice this? You start by saying there are no absolutes. But of course you've got to have some sort of moral code because society can't exist without it. So what do you land up with? You land up with political correctness. And uh, how does this work? Well it says, um, well I'm more liberal and more postmodern than you, so what I say must be right. And if you disagree with me, you're a bigot. Have you noticed how fashionable the word bigot is nowadays? A bigot is anybody who disagrees with you, or possibly disagrees with the BBC. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, fashionable word nowadays. There's no room for argument because there is no justification. There's no, there is no valid argument. It's, it's holier than thou in the end, isn't it? I'm more liberal, more postmodern than you are, so what I say goes. And that's it. It's, uh, that's the way it is. You're a bigot. And we find this, unfortunately, we find this sort of thinking in the, infecting the church also, don't we? Except then it's dressed up in spiritual language. They say, the Lord has shown me that you've got to go out and, I don't know, marry this girl. And, uh, hang on, hang on, I'm not sure I want to marry this girl. No, the Lord has shown me that. You're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. You're opposing the Holy Spirit. And clearly this sort of thing was rampant in the Corinthian church. Spiritual one-upmanship. And um, postmodern thinking. Thinking that denies any rational argument. But that's not the way it works. And that's not the way Paul works. Paul is a great believer in reasoned argument. A great believer in measured, being sparing with the absolutes. And I'd just like to look through here, this passage, and look, just look at the language that Paul uses. <coughs> of course, there are some things that are absolute. And so in verse 10, he says, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. And so he's saying, well, yeah, that's, I, th I think that's what he means when he says, not I, but the Lord. He's saying this is an absolute command, an, an absolute truth in one sense, that a married, a woman should not separate from her husband. There's no room for argument there. But even this absolute principle, he notices, has to be applied with judgment. And so in verse 12 he says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother or wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. So, yeah, okay, it applies even if your partner is not a believer. But that may not be workable. And notice there he says, I, not the Lord. In other words, he's an apostle, he has authority. But what I think he's saying there is this is not an absolute command. This is good advice, but it's not an absolute command. And to show that it's not an absolute command, it says, he says in verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So, even when there is an absolute, it has to be applied with judgment and wisdom. But in many cases, of course, these things are not um, absolutes at all. All the way through this passage, we can notice the measured language that Paul uses. So in verse 5, for instance, he says, he talks about um, 
doing something for mutual consent and for a time. In other words, you better discuss it. Think about it. Is this a good idea? You know, can we can we give up sex for a week? Is it a good idea? Think about it. Whether we can really do that without falling into sin. And if we do, uh, let's make sure we know how long it's going on for. Don't want you saying, you know, it's Thursday. We said we were going to have sex on Thursday, but um, you know, I, well, I thought it was Friday. You know, think about it. Get it right. Um, think, plan, plan ahead. In verse 6 he says, this is a concession, not a command. In other words, I'm not telling you you must do this, but it looks like a good idea. I think maybe, you know, we've got to live in the real world, and living in the real world, this is the way to do it. It's a concession. And in verse 7... I mean, verse 7, really, Paul. I wish that all men were like me. What sort of language is that for an apostle? Uh, the King translation is not one I've come across recently. He says, I would like all men to be like me. Come on, Paul, that's not very positive, is it? Um, but he says, that's what he says. And that's, I think, what it means. You know, I... It, it would be kind of nice if everybody was like me and could live a celibate life. But of course they, they can't, and I'm not going to claim that they should. I wish. Verses 8 and 9, he says, well, something's good. It's good for them to stay unmarried as I am, but there's a but. Alternative. Sometimes, some, maybe the alternative is better. If they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So one thing can be good, perhaps, but the other thing could be good as well. The other thing could be better. Later on, he says much the same thing the other way round. It's good to marry, but it might be better to remain unmarried. Verse seventeen. He talks about a rule. Um, this is the rule I lay down in the church. Everyone should um, retain the place in life the Lord has assigned to him and which God has called to him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. <coughs> but it's not really a rule, is it? In fact, it's much more of a guideline. Um, because even in this passage, he says later on, if you get the chance, if you're a slave, but you get a chance to gain your freedom, then take it. And um, Paul didn't always keep that rule himself, you know. About this stuff about circumcision, he says, if you're uncircumcised, don't become circumcised. But Paul broke that rule himself once, because we read in, um, I think it's in Acts 21. No, sorry, it's not in Acts 21, it's... Uh, never mind. Oh yeah, Acts 16. Um, Paul says he took Timothy, whose father was a Greek, and had him circumcised, so that he wouldn't be... Uh, barred from going to the synagogue and, teach and speaking to Jews. So Paul broke his own guideline there because it was better in that case, more wise in that case, to uh, have Timothy circumcised. It was just going to avoid a whole lot of trouble which would not have, um, you know, which he could avoid, so why not? And in verse 35 he says, uh, look, 
what I'm dealing with here. Um, I don't want to restrict you. I'm not trying to, you know, cut down your freedom. I'm not. You should make these decisions for yourself, guys. But I'm, I'm going to suggest some things for your own good. I'm going to give you some advice. But he says it's for your own good. I'm not trying to restrict you or command you or enforce anything here. And in particular, well, no, let's not say in particular. Verse 38, say so that's the reverse of what he'd said in verse 8 and 9. Verse 38, he said, it's good to remain unmarried, but it might be better to be married. In verse 38, he says, it's right to get married, but it might be better to stay unmarried. Um, in verse 39, uh, 37, he says, the man who has settled the matter in his own mind notice what he says there first of all you need to settle the matter and where do you do this settling do you um, sort of put down a fleece like Gideon did do you um, expect the, the elders to come and tell you the right answer do you um, do you even look for a proof text in the scripture <laughs> no he says you settle it in your own mind work it out for yourself guys think and then now let's look close, most closely at verse 40 and this verse 40 I think is the most striking of all so let's see what he's saying here in verse 39 he says a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives but if her husband dies she's free to marry anyone she wishes but he must be, belong to the Lord in my judgment she's happier if she stays as she is and I think that I too have the spirit of God first of all he says in my judgment or it's obviously the weak sense of judgment here some translations say in my opinion that's clearly what he's saying isn't it he says well there's a case to be made for the other side my opinion is that she might you know this is my opinion on the subject um, and uh, why does he have this why does he make this judgment is it because it's the spiritual thing to do is it because it's the right thing to do? No, well, he doesn't actually say that. He says, well, actually, I think she's going to be happier if she does this, does it this way. Um, it's not that one is spiritual or world and the other worldly. It's not that one is right and the other is wrong. Simply a case, just in the current circumstances, given the chaos that's around us at the moment and the possibilities of have, you know, being torn in two directions I think she's going to be happier if she remains unmarried okay but you know you can put a case both ways certainly is what he's saying and um, the criterion is simply what's going to make her happy ha keep her more happy <laughs> that's all he says and uh, what is the basis for this mighty apostle giving this judgment why does he say it well he says I think that I also have the spirit of God now people do argue about exactly what this means um, it could mean that he thinks the spirit of God agrees with him but he's not certain but that doesn't sound very likely um, if, more likely he's saying something like he feels that he is qualified to make spiritual judgments because he has the spirit 
But notice he says also, it may be that some people in the um, Corinthian church were saying, my spiritual judgment given me by the Holy Spirit is that a, a man should abstain from sexual relations with his wife, which is the quote that the passage started with. Maybe somebody was saying that, so this is what the Holy Spirit has told me. And he says, well, okay, there's a matter for discussion there, but I also have the Holy Spirit. And that's the authority he gives for it as well. He doesn't stand actually on his apostolic authority here. He says, well, it's a matter of spiritual judgment, of spiritual wisdom. Think it out for yourself, guys. We all have to make decisions. And the more important the decision, the more care we should give to it. But that doesn't mean we should, um, you know, say, oh, well, we can't make the decision, we'll just expect God to push the answer into our minds somehow. That's a very dangerous way of doing things. Sometimes God does do it, but even then we should be very careful, think very carefully about, you know, whether this is really the Spirit of God or we're just deceiving ourselves. The more important the decision, the more care it requires. The way of the Spirit is to speak spiritual wisdom. It's not based on the principles of this world. If you like, it's not based on the principle of a woman's body as her own, if that's uh, one of the principles of this world. It's based on the principle that we promise our bodies to each other when we get married. That's a spiritual principle. It's based on the values of the kingdom and the principles of the kingdom and the way the kingdom runs and as we sang in that psalm, Psalm 119 how can the young remain pure or how can the rest of us remain pure by meditating, thinking, studying God's word thinking about it, saying what does it really mean here not finding a proof text that supports my opinion we can all do that fairly easily on most things but actually trying to find out what the scripture says and you know sometimes there can, there, there can be you could come to one of two decisions and there's several things that Paul says here you could very well come to one of two decisions over and they'd both in a sense be right it would be right to marry or it would be right not to marry it would be right to marry if you know the, the woman is in danger of becoming a old maid is on the shelf as it were and people are starting to look at her and make remarks um, but it would also be right not to marry if they can remain celibate and devote their time totally to the Lord you could come to different conclusions with that same spiritual wisdom and those same spiritual principles um, what's the guy the parliament guy Dave what's the guy used to run the parliament thing to land it yeah he's, he, he spoke here once and said um, no, he believes that Christian MPs can go into the, the different lobbies and yet still be being faithful to the Spirit of God. And I think he's right. There are some issues in which, you know, it's right to make up your own mind. But we need to do it on spiritual principles. We need to weigh up the pros and cons. And as I said at the beginning, the pros and cons... Um, may well depend on the particular circumstances you're in. He says, in view of the present crisis, you've got to think in this particular way, but you won't, may not always be in that 
situation. Um, and sometimes, as he suggests in verse 20, the best decision is just to live with what you've got. I mean, you know, if you, it's a bit foolish to buy a property on a floodplain, but if you happen to own one, then um, surely the, the best thing is to find out about flood defences, not to sort of bemoan, sit there bemoaning the fact that you've, you know, you're about to get your feet wet. What can I do about this? <laughs> Sometimes you have to live with what you've got and stick where you are. Otherwise you can always be thinking, oh, the grass is greener on the other side of the hill. You, know, you can always be thinking that. Stick where you are and see what God wants you to do in that circumstance. This is often the best advice, but to say, even then, not always. If you have the chance to get your freedom, then take it. He says to the slaves. You need sober and spiritual judgment as to what's best to do in particular circumstances you find yourself, weighing all the issues carefully. Well, I'm not an apostle, but I'd like to, um, like to um, add a final thought of my own to this, if I may. Paul doesn't actually say this, uh, but I think it's in the back of his mind. God has created us actually with several abilities that he doesn't have himself. I don't really often want to notice that. There's several of them actually. He says uh, that he cannot deny himself, for instance. He cannot be faithless, although we can. But one of those is that he's created us with the ability to make mistakes. But God can't make mistakes because his wisdom is so thorough that he always makes the right decision. And therefore, creating us with the ability to make mistakes was not a mistake on God's part. He actually, in a sense, wants us to be thinking things through. And occasionally, probably we will make a mistake. You know, the old saying, a man who's never made a mistake has never made anything. Now, there's a truth in that saying. But there is a principle, of course, that we have to keep in mind. We're not on our own, as it were. We are supposed to um, judge with spiritual wisdom, not the wisdom of this world. And what he says was, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. We were talking about the word strength earlier and it's perhaps not entirely clear what strength means there but it certainly seems to mean something like if you're going to pick up a really heavy boulder you have to put your whole self into it don't you and so you have to put your whole self into this and you have to do your whole with your whole mind um, and with your whole heart in other words all of you and with your whole soul the deepest part of you all of you from the inside out has to love the Lord our God with all, all these things. And then perhaps we can be sure that we're doing what God requires and if we do make a mistake, he will be gracious and bring us back. So let's sing. I'm going to sing a hymn, for, conclude with a hymn about guidance. And it says, All the way my Saviour leads me, 869. Um, but I don't think that contradicts what we've just been saying. I think exactly the reverse. It says that our Saviour um, shows us as we study his word and as we think on it and as we engage ourselves with it, then he leads us forward and onward. So 869, all the way my Saviour leads me.